Today is the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany. It's that season on the church calendar where we focus on Christ being revealed to the world, made manifest, made known to the world as the Lord and Savior of the entire world. And in our sermon series this year, This Is Us, we've been looking at the ways that Christ might be revealed to the world through us, that we might be the agents for making Christ known to the people around us, our friends, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers. Now, this week that we're entering into now is a week of dramatic change on the church calendar. We go from Epiphany, which carries on the joy of Christmas for all these weeks, to a season that's a little less joyful, to the season of Lent. It really starts this Tuesday, Mardi Gras, as it's called by some people, which is Fat Tuesday in English, or Shrove Tuesday, or Pancake Tuesday, as it's known by some of us in the Commonwealth. It's a day that has significance, not in itself, because of the day it precedes. Precedes Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. Now, Fat Tuesday, on Fat Tuesday, it became a custom to eat pancakes because it was a good way to use up all the food that you wanted to quit eating during Lent. So you get rid of the eggs and the cream and the sugar and the chocolate, and the Nutella, and everything else that you would love to eat on your pancakes. You get it out of the house. Now, Lent is meant to prepare us for the celebration of Easter. The very roots of Lent are very old. When the early church used the season of Lent to prepare candidates who would be baptized into the faith on Easter morning. It was a time of teaching, catechism, learning, a time of confession, a time of repentance, a time of of exorcism even. It was was quite a deliberate time. Now, we often today think of Lent as a season of giving things up, Nutella, chocolate, etc. Yet, giving up things is merely the means to an end. It is not the end in itself. The end or aim of Lent is to turn our wandering hearts back towards God. We'll say more about that next Sunday. There's a little bit more about that in in the newsletter as well. Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, moves us dramatically from the party feeling of Mardi Gras into a dark and solemn reminder of our mortality. On Ash Wednesday, ashes from burnt palm branches, the ones that were used the previous year on Palm Sunday, are applied to a person's forehead in the sign of a cross. And words are quoted from the Psalms that confront us with our mortality. The worshiper is told, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the worshiper then responds by saying, The Lord remembers that we are but dust. Words taken from Psalm 103. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are, remembers that we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers, we bloom and die. The wind blows and we're gone, as though we had never been there. Focus on verse 14. He knows our frame. 
He literally knows our frame. He knows how we're made because he's our maker. He knows that we're made like flowers in the field, that we are mortal. We flourish, we bloom, we die, and the wind blows it away. Ash Wednesday reminds us of our own mortality. Now, on a light joke, a light note, the joke is told of a young boy that went home from the Ash Wednesday service, and he was playing in his room, and he happened to look for a toy under his bed, and he discovered some uh, rather large dust bunnies under the bed, and he went running into the kitchen. Mom, Mom, there's somebody under my bed. I just don't know whether they're coming or going. I have to think about that one a little bit. On days like Ash Wednesday, the church calendar nudges us towards being more contemplative, towards being thoughtful about the things that are most important, like our own mortality. For it is true, we are but dust. We will die. Many years ago, I knew a life insurance salesman named Harvey, and he would go into homes to talk to people about life insurance and planning for their future. And he said, almost everybody, with few exceptions, would say, if I die. And he would gently try to correct them and say, no, you need to be thinking about when you die. It's going to happen. It's not an if, it's, it's a when. Uh, death catches up with all of us eventually. We can only outrun it so long. And the aim of life insurance, of course, is to make proper arrangements for your family so that when you die, they'll be taken care of. Life insurance actually... Where are you, life insurance salesmen? Life insurance is, is actually a wonderful form of sacrifice. You sacrifice buying the things you might want today in order to take good care of your family when you're gone. That's a beautiful act of sacrifice. Now, Harvey had it right. We are but dust. We will die. Let's say this together. Let's say, let's say these words together. The Lord remembers that we are but dust. Say it with me. The Lord remembers that we are but dust. That brings us to our reading for today, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 50. It's Paul's summation of everything he's said about the resurrection of the dead. We spent the last three Sundays basically talking about this. In the verses that we looked at last week with Precious, we were powerfully and wonderfully affirmed in the hope of the resurrection and of being reunited with those who have gone before us. So we stand at a graveside. We say farewell to someone we love with a confident hope that one day we'll see that person again. We will know them, and they will know us. Would you just close your eyes for a second and picture a loved one that you've lost, mother, father, brother, friend, husband, wife. See that person in your mind and be encouraged that one day you'll see that person again. You will recognize that person. That person will recognize you. And imagine the joy. That is the truth affirmed for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is not the end. In other words, for a follower of Jesus Christ, death is a step toward eternal life. It's something Christians believe. And so we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul doesn't say we don't grieve. We grieve enormously. 
But our grief is tempered by and supported by and strengthened by hope, the hope that we will be reunited. Another thing that we believe is that someday Christ will return to the earth. We said that when we did communion. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's what we believe. Now, in this 16th century Italian painting, you see angels up top blowing their trumpets, and you see dead people being clothed in new bodies. What's happening? It's in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what is forever or will last forever. It's a statement of the obvious. Uh, These bodies of ours have a pretty short shelf life. They decline, they decay, they eventually start to turn to dust. Our bodies do pretty well if we get them to last 80 to 90 years. But they have no chance of lasting forever. They are going back to dust. If we want to last forever, we need a new body. A body that will not decay, that will not decline, that will not die. A body with a new design, the body given to us in the resurrection of the dead. Now, What about those of us who are living when Christ comes? The Corinthians must have asked that question because Paul answers it. Remember, 1 Corinthians is a response to a letter they wrote. We don't have that letter, but we can kind of work out what their questions were by looking at the answers Paul gives them. So it's like they said, well, what about, okay, if the dead in Christ get new bodies, what about us who are alive when Christ comes back? Well, Paul answers that question. Verse uh, 51. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. We don't have to die in order to be transformed. It will happen a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. Remember that word from last week? Precious was was emphasizing that. We will be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Transformation. Those who are alive when Christ comes back will get the upgrade to the new body without having to take the step of death. That's simple, isn't it? We get upgraded to the new body without having to pass through the portal of death to get there. Whether we're in the life, in the grave, though, or alive when Christ returns, death is conquered. Death is not our final end. This is our hope, and this is our source of strength in this life. Which leads to Paul's climatic thought. Through Christ's death and resurrection, our great and lasting enemy, death, has suffered absolute defeat. Verse 54, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, death in our human experience is, is a frightening foe. It severs relationships with those who matter the most to us. And it crushes our dreams, sometimes in painful, cruel ways. When a young person dies, we lament the lost potential of what that person might have become. And at the other end of our lives, we experience often death as a long, drawn-out, torturous process. And some of us, some of us of us have watched our parents take a long, long time to die. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that this enemy, this enemy who has been haunting us and hunting us since our exile from Eden, has finally in Christ been finally conquered and defeated completely. This is gospel. It's news. It's fact. It's not a story. Is truth. And yet Paul's not done. Remarkably, he wants to add a couple of more lines to this. He's not done by saying that death is conquered. He uses the word therefore. Therefore, he's made his case, and now he's going to move on to an application of what this means. He says, therefore, be encouraged. And he's going to speak some very encouraging words to each one of us. Look at the first part of verse 58 what it means to be encouraged. He says, be strong and immovable. We took this picture in Newfoundland. It's some kind of rock that uh, I think you only find here and in New Zealand, if I remember right. That rock's not going anywhere. I don't care how bad, how bad the storms are. That rock is strong and immovable. It's a lot bigger than it looks in the picture. Be strong and immovable. Because of the resurrection of the dead, we can face death with a resolve to be strong and immovable, our pain notwithstanding. We can walk even in the valley of the shadow of death and declare, I will not be shaken. That's what Paul says. For those who have lost someone, Paul says, be strong and immovable. For those dealing with their own decline, facing their own death, Paul says, Be strong and immovable. Ah, but he's still not quite finished yet. He's got one more thing to to add. Look at his closing line. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Keep working, Paul urges. Yeah, sure, you're going to die, but don't let that slow you down. Keep working. Keep doing all those things that you're doing because you're a Christian. Keep listening to God. Keep praying to God. Keep serving one another. Keep embracing the newcomer who comes into your life, even though they're very different. Keep keep equipping one another to serve God and to serve Christ's body and the world. Keep engaging the world around you in the name of Christ. For this is who we are in Christ. We embrace people, we equip people, we engage people. Possibly, however, I wonder if Paul didn't fear that hearing about new bodies in the life to come might make some people become so focused on that life to come that they'd quit doing anything important now. I don't know, does that sometimes happen to people? 
possibly. He says to those people who might be so focused on the life to come, they forget about life now. Keep working, he says. Don't quit. Keep working. But what really strikes me is his last word, useless. Useless. The word almost seems to come out of nowhere. Don't worry, your your work for Christ is not useless. It makes me wonder, I say this with caution because I speak too much up here. They, They say that you can tell what a pastor struggles with by the things he talks about. Well, there you go. Figure me out if you want. And once you get me figured out, let me know so I can figure me out. But anyway, I wonder if Paul wasn't struggling with feeling useless. Paul? He was a giant. How how could he feel useless? One thing is clear from 1 Corinthians. Absolutely clear. That church has been harshly critical of Paul. He could hardly do anything among the Corinthians without somebody criticizing him. Often in a very insulting way. Enormously insulting of Paul. He'd worked as hard as he could. And what did he get in return? Criticism. Harsh criticism. That can make a person feel pretty useless, can't it? Maybe he knew what it was like to feel useless. On another hand, I I watched, in a movie we watched several years ago at our men's retreat, which for those of you guys who go, it's uh, the last day of May and the first two days of June this year. Henry, thanks. You'll be there? Yep, excellent. Um, We watched a movie in which two brothers, retired brothers, elderly brothers, one had just come out of the hospital, actually, after collapsing while trying to load their pickup truck with something. He, uh, they're in a diner eating lunch, and, and, and the one brother says to the one who just came out of the hospital, you've never been afraid of anything in your whole life. What are you afraid of now? You're afraid of something. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of getting old? You're afraid of dying? And he pounds the table. I won't do it because there's a mic here. He pounds the table and says, no, I'm afraid of being useless. Strikes a chord, doesn't it? Nobody wants to feel useless. He said, when we were young, we always had something important to do. We mattered. What do we do now? We garden. Actually, in the movie, they bought a whole bunch of seed from a traveling salesman. And they, they bought tomatoes and cucumbers and all this other stuff. Turned out every bag only had corn in it. So their garden had nothing but corn. You know, it felt useless. Those who fear being useless can find encouragement in Paul's words. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Are we getting the point? I was, when I was finishing up my time with the Navigators and preparing to retire... I began to appreciate Psalm 71 in in a new way. It's probably a psalm of David, though we're not sure. It's not one of those that has his name attached to it, but it sounds like David. Listen to these words from these two verses. They, They feel like a fear or a concern. And now in my old age, he's saying this to God, don't set me aside. Don't abandon me when my strength is failing. And then farther down in the psalm, verse 18, he says, Now that I'm old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. 
Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Even after a life of great service, slaying Goliath and uniting the kingdom and establishing it, David was afraid of being useless, and he didn't want to be there. None of us want that. So we need to go back to Paul's words. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. But what is the guarantee that our work will never be useless? The resurrection. The resurrection of of Jesus Christ. Our resurrection. Paul's encouragement is based on the fundamental fact underlying our faith, the fact of the resurrection. This, this is a painting by another Italian by the name of Sebastiano. What I like about this one, I don't know if you can see it that well, but actually at the very top of it, there are angels up there at the top of it, and they're a band. There's an angelic band up there welcoming all the saints who are coming to heaven. And they got lutes and lyres and guitars and bass guitars and ukuleles. It looks like they got the whole thing going on up there. I love that. That's the guarantee that our work is never useless. Christ has been raised from the dead, and through his resurrection, death has been undone, and we too will be raised to life. But there's still one outstanding question to ask. What is this work that Paul speaks of? What is the work of the Lord? Well, the short answer is this. It is anything that you or I do for Jesus. Anything. The work of the Lord is anything we do for Christ. What do you think? Well, you teach Sunday school. Oh, that's good. You mentor teens on Friday nights in the youth group. Uh, you know where you are. You do great work. That's for the Lord. That's wonderful. Uh, you sing in the choir, not because it lowers your blood pressure, because you're doing it for Jesus. You didn't, did you mention that, Kim? That part? Good. Yeah, yeah, I thought you did. That's good. That's good. You're on a worship team. Poor Ashley is really not well today. She's really sick. Did she stay home and stay in bed? No. She came here and sang, and I kept looking. Are you okay, Ash? Are you okay? So far, she's okay. Why is she doing that? She's doing it for the Lord. That's why she's doing it. Play an instrument for the Lord. You're an usher for the Lord. You're a greeter for the Lord. You're, you're on the security detail around the church, trying to help everybody feel secure here in this place. Doing it for the Lord. That's all work you're doing for the Lord. It's never in vain. But that's all wrapped up in what we do in this building. What about the rest of our time? What about the rest of our week? We're only here for a few hours during the week. Look at Matthew 10, verse 42. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. The things that we do during the week, away from church, count. Consider Matthew 24, the last judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison And you visited me. And then the righteous will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry 
or, and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it, the, the least one of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. This picture is a sculpture outside of St. Mary's Catholic Church in San Antonio, Texas, or Austin, I don't remember which. A homeless person sleeping on a bench. Do you ever give a little bit of money to a homeless person? I think most of us do. Is that useless? Not if you do it in the name of Christ. Not if you do it because you're a follower of Jesus. Because Paul says, nothing we do for Christ is useless. Even the smallest acts of kindness done in the name of Jesus are never useless. Bestina shared a, a story with this a couple of years ago during uh, For the Peg, or Love Peg, what was it? Anyway, um, she and Jeff were driving home from church on, on a Sunday morning, and I asked her permission to retell this story this morning. And uh, she saw someone sitting on a curb, a woman sitting on the curb, looking very destitute. And she said, Jeff, stop. And she got out and she sat down next to that woman sitting on the curb and started to talk to her, heard her story. And then Justina did, said, did something absolutely remarkable. Don't forget, Justina, in her earlier life, was an officer in the Salvation Army. Justina, the Salvation Army officer, bought that woman a pack of cigarettes because that woman desperately needed it. It's the one thing that would relieve some of her pain in that moment. And Justina did that. And then Justina took her to the hospital and made sure that she was admitted into the emergency ward because the woman needed help. What happened to that woman? I don't know. Maybe a few days later, she was back sitting on that curb again, lost and lonely and hurting. We don't know. No, Justina just wasted her time. No. Justina did that because she's a follower of Jesus, and there was nothing remotely useless about what she did. That is a promise based on the power of the resurrection. We know that this is true because the resurrection is true. Not even the smallest thing you do for another person, even to smile at them, is not useless when you do it as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, encourage us this morning. Encourage us in the face of, of death. Encourage us in the face of our own mortality. Encourage us in our own weakness. But also encourage us in our service to you, no matter what it is, what form it takes, that because of your resurrection, no service to you is ever useless. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.